Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again at the head of the Center for Lit crew, gathered together on this beautiful day to discuss all things literary. Always a pleasure to be with you, everyone. You guys are my posse, and I'm really glad to be riding the literary range with you. <laughs> yes. The literary range. That's almost like a metaphor. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> almost. Let's quick, ride that one. <laughs> a quick round of introductions, as we usually do. My lovely wife, Missy. Hi. My daughter, Megan. Hi. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And his beautiful wife, Emily. Hello. Together, we ride the literary range. <laughs> You know, that's a... It's a spurring one, or one oh, another spurring on. spurring one another oh, along. Oh do we ride Very the ranger or do we ride each other? <laughs> we will see as the hour goes along how many brickbats we actually throw. Hopefully there'll be some of that, however, because today's topic is one that's close to my heart as an avid reader of books since a boy. And also, I think close to your guys' hearts too, the topic is historical fiction. I think we could have a pretty good conversation about that, my friends. Oh, yeah. I well, I don't know so. about a good conversation. We can sure have a war, though, which is, I think, why everyone's here. <laughs> <laughs> historical fiction, by which we mean, of course, works of literature set in particular historical periods that draw the events of history into their stories in one way or another. A fabulous genre, especially for young readers, or maybe primarily for young readers, but also, as I think we'll talk about as the hour goes along, there's a lot of great examples of historical fiction for readers of all ages. Some of the great classics of the Western tradition could be qualified or classified as historical fiction. And I thought it would be fun to talk about it because it turns out there are a couple of issues for serious readers related to historical fiction that I think bear thinking about and discussing. But Emily, I think you had a comment already. Go ahead. I was just wondering if our listeners know that you almost got your PhD in history. That's a good question. I don't think they do. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I am a failure as a... I'm just kidding. I won't lie. That was a little pointed. <laughs> I didn't mean it like no, that. No, I'm just kidding, Emily. I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's true. I am a historian by training and love history kind of as my as my first love and got into literature uh, basically from hanging around with my wife. And uh, she's the lit major in our in our family. Oh, not the only one. Not the only one now, but at the, you know, back in the day when we were founding the whole thing, it was you were you were literature and I was history. And so I guess Emily's leading up to something significant. The combination of the two is kind of fun for Missy and me. I've got that interest in history, she's got the interest in literature, and it's a great thing when the two combine. By the way, though, Emily, to throw it back at you, you double majored in English and history <laughs> in college, did you not? That is true. I did. So maybe, and and Ian, you were an English major, so you guys have got the same dynamic in your marriage too, yes? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So let's let's talk a little bit about the genre, historical fiction. And what I want to spend most of our time doing today is just sharing stories of our favorite titles in that genre and experiences that we've had with some of the great works that can be classified as historical fiction. But a few comments before we start. What do we mean by it? 
what do we uh, when you when you think of the term historical fiction? Um, what do you mean? What's the idea that comes to mind? Well, I think you might have already defined the term historical fiction. <laughs> it's, That's what you were going to say? Yeah, no, it is. That is what I was going to say. <laughs> so does that definition that I use, is that good enough for our purposes? A work of literature that draws on a historical period as part of its setting or something like that? I think so, yeah. In order to be a good work of historical fiction, does it have to deal with actual historical personages? Do they have to be characters in the story? Um, not necessarily. No. Sometimes they're just in the background. Okay. Mentions but it is of their more name. fun when they show up in the story, right, Ian? Well, kind of. I mean, I think the other thing that's true about historical fiction is that it's possible to do it really badly. And uh. one of the easiest ways to do a piece of historical fiction badly is to, in the way that you present an actual figure from history, get it all wrong, put the wrong spin on the period of history, mm-hmm. and come out preaching at your readers instead of entertaining them. Well, but I would suggest that every writer of historical fiction is putting some kind of spin on the figures of history. You almost can't avoid it. What can you? How? Someone give me an example of historical fiction done badly, and why? No, I don't mean done badly. I just mean, for example, I'm reading Johnny Tremaine for our class right now, and um, they paint Sam Adams to be pretty bleak. Hmm. And whether or not that's actually true, um, I mean, we have his papers, but you know, like they turned him into a character instead of a historical figure. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Sure. So, so right away, we're we're diving into, a, I think, a pretty deep interpretive issue uh, that's completely appropriate for discussion of history and literature together, there's a difference between a historical interpretation that's purportedly about the facts of history and a literary figure, a character in a work of literature. Right, Emily? Yeah. um, I mean, leave it to me to get right to the point as quickly as possible. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's you have to be really cautious when you're using historical fiction in your school because it, it's not necessarily accurate history. Mm. Right. The author is an author, not a historian in a lot of cases. Right. And of course you want to lead your children into a love of history through historical fiction. Everyone loves Johnny Tremaine. That's why we're teaching it, right? Like that's how so many people remember the events of the Revolutionary War. But they have a spin on them. You can't leave it at that. When your students get older, you have to teach the them to see it for what it is. And maybe the idea that that a the the author of a work of literature that's set in a historical period is going to spin the events in the characters for his own literary purposes isn't to say that a historian writing a history isn't also doing that to some degree. In other right. words, all writing is interpretive. All storytelling, whether it's historical or literary, is interpretive. But but I, I want to add to that idea that the right the author of a work of literature is is first and foremost telling a literary story. Yeah, it's art, right? right. His his writing. number one priority is not a faithful representation of so history, right? Maybe what we ought to say actually is that the the when taking it upon yourself to read a piece of historical fiction. You have to be a good reader in a very particular way. You have to not read it like a piece of history. And you well, have to right. And if, you're, story if you're interested in the historical time period, you should check your facts. Right. Because it's a story. It might not be right. Ah. Yeah. I think about um, Shakespeare's Macbeth, where that's concerned, which, you know, Shakespeare often went to the to Hollinshed's Chronicles and things like that in order to find storylines um, and turn them into plays. Yeah. But what you find if you dig deeply enough is that he would sometimes take two separate personalities from a historical period and conflate their stories. 
make them into make one them character, into one character, yeah. one person, and have the events that happen in one person's life actually. Um, he'd attribute them to someone else. So if you're reading his Macbeth for history, uh-huh. you're getting faulty history. Right. You know? So you do want to be well, aware of that, that What about Richard III? Yeah, what about it? What, what about it, Emily? Well, everyone has this horrible picture of Richard III now as the crookback who's evil right. and manipulative. And that's only one of three different suggestions for what he might have actually been. Yeah, right. <laughs> all three of which are equally well supported by yeah. all the historical facts that we have. Yeah, sure. right. So the so the uh, the the author of a historical fiction is giving an interpretation of a historical period that serves his literary purposes, and, and we should keep that in mind as we read. Though, right? He's mining history for subject matter, you know, for interesting storylines. Right. And maybe it's even too much to say that he's giving an interpretation yeah, of history. Yeah, I think so. Unless he's actually a historian who's writing narrative, right. which is interpreting right. that's, history That's what I was trying to say a second ago, is that he's not a historian. <clears throat> no, he's an artist. I think it does, it does his work a disservice to read it as history. Yeah, but it's absolutely. fiction. Read it like fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about it like fiction. Let's think about it like fiction. Yeah. If you think about it like history, it's you're it's not gonna you're not gonna enjoy yourself. No, well, the, the most the it can do for us where history is concerned is um plant us in a place in time and make us curious about that place, those people that populate it, so that we would go to history and do our own research. Well, let me follow that up, though. Is is When Shakespeare wrote Richard III and created this villainous character that a lot of historians dispute the accuracy of, was he, was he in the wrong? Did he do something? Well, no, was, was he doing he's something that he shouldn't have done? Sorry, Em, go ahead. Well, I was saying he's an artist, not a historian. His purpose wasn't to accurately give us facts about the time period. He was telling us a story. Right. Yeah, right, I agree. And so you can do that and and maybe even intentionally conflate historical characters or misrepresent what you know to be the facts for the sake of a good story? I think it's almost one of your jobs if you're writing historical fiction to make it interesting. Your point, your first and foremost, your point is to is to write a good story that's interesting and fascinating and leads, you know, your readers to be interested in the period. I'm frustrated with works of historical fiction that I read growing up as a kid. One in particular I'm thinking of, I think it's called Ink on His Fingers or something like oh, that. Yeah. I had to read it for history. And Gutenberg's I Press. thought it was a work of historical fiction. <clears throat> and I was expecting a brilliant story that might have, you know, might have some historical events in the background that would give me some context. But mostly I was expecting a great story. And instead, it was just a history book. And it was very dry. And there was basically no plot and no character development. And I was very frustrated because... The fictional part of it didn't come through. Ah. So I think you can err um, on both sides. Ah, okay. That reminds me of Johnny Tremaine that you guys brought up already, um, that Ian and Emily are teaching this semester. The The point of the story, obviously, the theme of the story, what the, what the author is clearly after, is some sort of story of character development. Right, it's the story right. of this protagonist becoming a man, and you know, learning the right. value of hard work. I mean, there's some moralistic, even themes in it. Those are in the foreground mm-hmm. of this historical. I fiction, mean, and right? consequently, she did a great job of kind of playing up the different sides fairly, but still, you want to go see for yourself, you know, to develop your own opinion. You can't develop your opinion about the Revolutionary War from Johnny Tremaine, right? right. Even right. even at the fourth grade level <clears throat> is what you're saying, right? right? But what you well, can no, do. I wouldn't I wouldn't impress that upon a fourth grader and say, Well now we have to go read all the documents from right. the family. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's I not just really think funny. it's something to keep in mind as they grow older. I wouldn't necessarily 
leave it at historical fiction as they enter high school. Ah, interesting. Missy, you had a comment. Go ahead. Oh, I, I basically, I was thinking about a book that um, we used to read when we studied Egyptian history that Ian loved, um, The Cat of Bubastes. Remember, Ian? Oh, do I ever. Ah, uh, G.A. Henty. Which I loved. And Henty. I don't think you liked it as well, Adam, but um, I really loved that story because I felt like I was walking through Egypt in that time period. I got the sights and the smells and all of the sensory input. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That is one of the beautiful things about historical fiction. Like it? what you were saying a minute ago, it puts you down in a place in time. Yes. Primarily when the author uses the history to create a setting. Yes. Right? If the author is really skillful, um, really skillful at description, right? Really really um, gifted at the research that he's done, he can make a place and time come alive for his readers so that they really do feel like they've traveled through time and they were there, Right, you know? And so I can see why it's really tempting to say, this is our history lesson for today. Yeah. Because you really do get that sense that you were present. I mean, when I read Johnny Tremaine, I thought, it's like I was just right there with the the sons of the revolution, you know? The Boston Tea Party. I was at the Boston Tea Party. I was in those those little meetings that they had in private when they were making these plans. You do feel like you're there with them. And there's a lot to be said for that. I agree. Especially for young children. Maybe, you know, by doing this at a young age, you create a an appetite for other times and places mm-hmm. that would feed their curiosity. I have such a great example of that, that, <laughs> that, that jumps the barrier between the young kids and old kids. My sister, who is a grown-up, <laughs> very recently... Oh, no. oh, this is Do awesome. you guys know this story? I love this story. This story My sister, who is a grown-up, very recently read Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities for the first time. I don't think it was that recently. But well, yes. it was in the last few years. Yeah. It was in the last few years. And, and you know, she hadn't ever read it before. She picked it up to read. And she came to me and said, that, uh, A Tale of Two Cities. Have you read it? And I said, yeah. And she goes, that went down in France? And I had nobody no told idea. Me. <laughs> she said, that went down in France and I had no idea. And then, so she... <laughs> So she went immediately and read up on the French Revolution, which, of course, is the historical setting of Charles Dickens' great novel, A Tale of Two Cities. An exact example of what you're talking about, right? It yeah. creates well, a desire for history in our in in the heart of a reader. Yeah. Yes, and she actually has gone on to read like Victor Hugo's Les Mis and all of. Oh, she's a, a bunch buff of now. She, she loves right. the subject. <laughs> she knows way more about no, it than I do. <laughs> Uh, Emily, you had a comment? Oh, no, I was just saying that's exactly how it should be done, right? It should create a desire to go pursue the facts. Yeah, yeah. But it, with The Tale of Two Cities, the the themes of that story are woven in with a pretty standard English interpretation of the French Revolution, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Oh, he tells you from page one that yeah. that's his point, Yeah, right? that's right. He does. In creating does. the two cities, both yeah. monarchical governments, right? Right. And one going through this horrible thing, which is very threatening if you're reading the room, so to speak, yeah. to the other powers that be. That's why it's a good thing to know a little bit of the history of the author writing the book that you're reading as well, yes, right? A little context. Right. Charles Dickens, the Victorian English writer who's got the standard view on all things French and on the French Revolution in particular. Yeah, you get that same Here's- sense with... Um, with something like Paul Revere, uh, the the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere that Longfellow wrote, which you talk about pretty often in your convention lectures. Yeah. I want to talk about that in just a second, but I think Ian had a comment on Dickens first. Go ahead, Ian. 
No, it wasn't on Dickens, but what I wanted to say is that so far the tone of the conversation, and, and <clears throat> I'm fine with this, and I think it's a valid one to have. So far the tone of the conversation is um, about how literature isn't history, and so a, a good historical fiction writer is going to direct you back to the history so you can go get facts. And that's totally true, but as an um, English major, not a double history and English major, my concern is for the literature. I think it does violence to the work of literature mm -hmm. to read it as a piece of history, not just doing violence mm -hmm. to the history to read it as a work of literature. Oh, because, yeah. And I want to use an example. I want to talk about um, Crane's Red Badge of Courage for just a second. Mm -hmm. The setting is the, the American Civil War. And one of the details that everybody points out is uh, this story wasn't written by a man who had any experience with battle. Stephen Crane was never in a war. And so why should we listen to him? Right. This is always brought up in every conversation I've ever had about Red Badge of Courage. It's, it's a great story. So be quiet. Right. It's not about <laughs> he was in a battle. The point of it is he understands human nature and he's using the setting of the story to evoke things in you as a reader so that he can make his main point which is a point about human nature like all great well, authors and on top of that i think it's tempting to bring in your own perception of the civil war to that story hmm. and because you're probably pro anti-slavery union rah-rah like the civil war was a great thing that defeated this horrible institution in our country you're going to be tempted to see the protagonist as a hero who comes to find his courage right um, right right and sacrifice himself uh, just that's not what it's about. No, 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 <laughs> no it's certainly not. So, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, let, let's, let's make sure we do both halves of the conversation, right? On the one hand, we have, okay, here's what historical fiction can't do for the study of history. And I support that. That's great. Also, though, here we are, a group of literary folks having a literary podcast. Let's talk about defending literature as an institution against history, even in this particular area. You know what I mean? Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't absolutely. thought of that, but I think you might be right. For the sake of enjoying and appreciating and understanding great literature on its merits, we ought not to step in and be historians all the time. That's kind of your yeah. suggestion, right? I mean, really, if you right. think about it, why does an right. author use a historical setting? Is it not because that historical setting is so compelling? The, the conflict inherent, for example, in the French Revolution, you get immediate conflict just with the setting right from the outgo, right? Just right from the start right. of the story. Right. And that is really useful. Yeah, of course. When you're creating a novel. Of course. You know? So looking at, at setting that way, I think is really, really wonderful. Also, the contextual thing I was bringing up about Paul Revere's um, ride oh, yeah. a moment ago, I think when we read literature, it's really important to read it contextually, to know a little something about the time in which it was created. And sometimes it was created with a purpose, a uh -huh. larger purpose in mind, like Longfellow's poem. Did you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, well, the idea that that uh, it's a it's a common practice among um, the homeschoolers that we work with a lot to use a poem like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's Midnight Ride of Paul Revere to talk about the American Revolution and to teach the importance of Paul Revere's ride and to teach things like the patriotism of the Minutemen and that sort of thing. And of course, if you scratch the surface of that poem at all, you realize that it was not written during the American Revolution, but was written actually in the run-up to the Civil War in January of 1861. And so when you do a little thematic, thematic analysis of that poem, you find the poet urging his readers to fan into flame the spark of patriotism and liberty so that they can go do what the Minutemen did, which is essentially resist slavery and tyranny. And no, preserve the Union. And preserve the Union, knowing that that was 
that was written uh, during the secession crisis between the election of Abraham Lincoln and the secession of the last of the Confederate states in early 1861. By the poet laureate of the nation. By the poet laureate of the nation, who had basically a megaphone to the ear of the whole country, puts the issues in a whole new light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you do begin to think about the fact that... um, all literature is written with a purpose in mind. Sometimes the purpose is to entertain, and sometimes it's to spur to action. Right. And in that case, that's what we had there. So knowing a little something about the con- the context in which a piece is written is very significant. Mm, yeah, yeah. Even a piece of right. historical fiction. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, right. I, and it's I, not I was... necessarily even there to help you um, combat the errors of the of the literature's presentation of the history. Oh, it's no, also no. there to make sure the literature is effective. Yes, because right. what our goal is is to figure out what the author meant, right? And sometimes context has a lot to do with that. I'm teaching a a visual arts class in my homeschool co-op this year, which is a reach for me because I'm not an artist. (laughs) I have had a visual arts class. I wish you guys knew what a reach that was. (laughs) (laughs) I have had a visual arts class and I can read and I do enjoy my art. There are your credentials (laughs) in a nutshell. There you go. (laughs) But interestingly enough, this week we were looking at um, Roman history and I was looking at a, a particular temple and the the frias on the temple that depicted the Battle of Salamis. Uh-huh. And the art textbook that I was looking at suggested that the um, the depiction of the Battle of Salamis was very intentionally similar to Longfellow's um, depiction of the American Revolution. Really? Yeah, that it was something in the history that they could pull out in order to represent bravery, fortitude, strength, um, a noble death, mm-hmm. all of those kinds of things they were trying to evoke about their people. In a particular group. day right. in which the thing was done. Well, no, their later. Their own day. Later, yeah, exactly. Right. The, because they, it was on the, you know, they were basically wanting to draw from the Battle of Salamis, which was, um, you know, earlier in history and attribute it to the people that they were trying to re- represent in that day. Oh, That's as far as I can go with that. <laughs> <laughs> if you sense vagaries, they are present. <laughs> Your artistic uh, education just petered out, didn't it, Missy? Yeah. (laughs) But But I went there boldly, (laughs) as no man has gone before. Had a girl. Had a girl. Um, I want to jump to back to something that Ian said a second ago about when we read literature, uh, going ahead and being literary about it and protecting, as it were, the integrity of literature from the questions of history that might cloud it in the case of historical fiction. But I want to ask this question, and Ian, you start, and maybe you guys, uh, you other guys have something to throw in here too. Why does an author go to write historical fiction then if the literary goal is paramount and is to be protected? Why does he start with history to tell his story? I can think of like three reasons that um, that he would do that. The first one is that, uh, and this might be a little bit of a jab at historical fiction, but... Um, you don't have to do a lot of coming up with setting yourself if you go to write <laughs> yeah. about a piece of history. <laughs> oh no, come on, that's right? cheap. <laughs> it's easy. There's a starting place for you, right? That's a little cheap, baby. The second, the second reason that I can think of is that you do want to make a point about human nature using some great character, right? Using someone who's come down to us through history as an example of fortitude or an example of ingenuity or an example of something important in the human condition that you want to highlight. And by setting your story in that man's time and in that man's set of circumstances, it's easy to get at the character issues that you really want to be talking about. Or the thematic issues um, having nothing to do with character, just the the, the big ideas, right? 
Right. Yeah, that's what I meant. The character issues as in moral character issues. Yeah. Thematic points that you're trying to make about the human condition that are easy to make because this person is famous for having been an example of that sort of thing. But I think my favorite, and this is this isn't maybe a reason for an author to write historical fiction, but um, going back to G.A. Henty for just a second, he's one of my favorites. Um, well, A, he's also one of the most prolific writers of historical fiction I've ever heard of. I don't know how many books he has. But, like 80, um, I think. Yeah, there's 80 some odd books that that, he, that he's written, all of which are historical fiction, and some of which are very much better than others. Um, but one of the very best is called The Dragon and the Raven, and it's about the reign of King Alfred in Wessex uh, before England was unified under one kingdom. And what he does is says, this is such a cool period of history. There's so many cool things going on here. What I want to do is find a way to talk about the, the battles. I want to talk about the kings and battles. I want to talk about the timeline. And Henty's actually a fine historian himself um, and does a really good job of describing these timelines and, and casting actual historical events. And what he's going to do is, in order to make it interesting to everybody else so that they can see how cool it is from his perspective, he's going to create a fictional character whose story weaves in and out with King Alfred's so that Alfred is a character and you get to see him in action. But the point of the fiction, the point of the story is something that he can completely make up off the top of his head with no repercussions because this guy never existed. I think that's where maybe historical fiction is at its finest Ah. is where you can get completely wrapped up in how good an author is at telling a story because the guy he's telling it about is totally fictitious. Right. Whereas the setting itself might actually be real names and dates and battles and transitions in history i um put in mind of that the uh blockbuster movie of about 20 years ago titanic starring leonardo dicaprio Ugh. the um <laughs> i wonder if i wonder if missy could tell us what her reaction to the mention of that name oh wait a minute she already did it was a great example of what ian is talking about that just popped to mind because you have this fictitious character the protagonist of the story who spends the whole movie basically bumping into the actual actors in that drama, the historical figures that right. really did sail on the Titanic, but the director and the, the screenwriter can do whatever they want with this yeah, protagonist, like, you know, Be- cast the woman character as a modern day feminist. <laughs> yes. There were some other okay. problems completely separate from the one I'm trying to talk about. <laughs> Might have been a little anachronistic. I don't know. What do you think? I'm sorry. I brought it up. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> Well, I think that it it allows a really beautiful weaving between literature and history. And I mean, really, all the subjects are interconnected anyway, but it kind of takes literature, which is supposed to point to human nature and puts it in history where human nature is actually playing itself out. Mm-hmm. And we see that they're connected. You know, we can see, you know, actually, these things really were happening in history and like facts aside um, these are real problems that right. real people struggle with. Well, and, and so to Shakespeare then, I think, because I've never, I mean, I don't think that there's anyone better at doing what you're talking about right now, right? Recognizing, to to use one of his own phrases, that the world itself is a stage and that human nature is being played right, out exactly. in history. And so saying, okay, here's what we're going to do because I am better at meta-analysis than all of you humans ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to step in and make an actual stage and I'm going to comment on the world stage on my own little stage. And we're still reading him today because he was just so darn good at that. Yeah. Not only is he telling a, a tr- he's telling a truer story from my perspective ah. than 
than even it would have been if he had put the events of Richard III's life in a way that was totally unaffected by the monarch that succeeded him. Uh, right, and he's aware of that, right? Because at the beginning of Henry V, he says, there's no way I can cram all of this action into this little O. Exactly. I'm going to try it anyway. Yeah, I'm going to give it a shot anyway. <laughs> but what, but what, what I mean to say by, say by saying that he's telling a truer story is that the ins and outs of human nature are the most important piece of the puzzle when it comes to reading history or literature well, mm-hmm. right? Understanding yourself and understanding the similarities between all of us as fallen creatures, that's where you're going to become a good historian. It's where you're going to become a good reader of literature. And so Shakespeare, I mean, go read the history plays because all he's doing is a clinic on understanding human nature right. and he's using real historical events to do it. Well, yeah. I mean, you would become a literary scholar for almost the same reasons you would become a historian. It just depends on where your passion lies, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And that's, that is a good, a final answer to my original question. Why does a, why does a literary artist often go to history as a starting point? Because, as Emily and Ian have just suggested, uh, writers and historians are after the same thing. Let us depict mm-hmm. human nature. Mm-hmm. And they do and it slightly differently, to... but their, their, their subject matter is really similar. Well, and interestingly enough, they're both trying to create a narrative. They are indeed. No, de- no, no question about that. I would love to, for example, hear John Degree from the classical historian's perspective as someone who came at it from history instead of literature. I know this is one of the pet topics that we love to talk about with him. Yeah, that's right. In fact, we should have him on one time and talk yeah, about this issue. That would be fun. John Degree from the classical historian, one of our friends in the the uh, homeschool curriculum world, has a lot of interesting things to say about this topic, as do serious readers and historians all over. You know, another person that would be fun to talk to about that is um, Professor McKenzie. Oh, yeah. A friend of mine from my days at the University of Washington, who's now the chair of the history department at Wheaton College and is a uh, fellow traveler on some philosophical and theological issues. He has some interesting uh, thoughts about how to think historically. Maybe you could have the well. two of them on it. Oh my goodness, that, that would be, be fun. really fun. That certainly would. I wonder what they would say about, about uh, historical fiction in general. I have another question on that subject, and which is, can we press the, the limits of that genre at all? I mean, are there some works that that you might not think of as historical fiction, that if we apply these ideas to, really do kind of qualify. One of the ones I'm thinking of is a book we talk about all the time here, uh, Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which is written in 1885, Mm -hmm. but set in the 1830s Mm -hmm. in a previous historical period, using fictional characters uh, entirely. Mm -hmm. However, some very real historical data and some historical conditions right. in particular. The dialect and anti- all of the... Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say in particular antebellum slavery. Oh, well, of course. Yeah. Right? Do, what do you guys think? Should we qualify... Should we characterize that great American novel as historical fiction for that reason? I mean, maybe. Um, I think the popular definition of historical fiction is, like Johnny Tremaine, a work of fiction that exists solely to talk about an event or a series of events in history. I mean, or a personality, by the definition right? of historical fiction that you were right, or a personality. The definition of historical fiction that you're suggesting here with uh, Mark Twain, or another one that jumps to mind is Hawthorne's um, Scarlet Letter. Um, any book set in any period of time that was an actual period of time, it basically anything except fantasy is historical fiction. 
because it it takes place in a time. Yeah, I think that might be too broad. <laughs> that might just be too I broad. I see what you're saying. <laughs> I see what you're saying. Except that I would I don't know. I don't know if I if I agree with you because because in in the case of Twain for example, uh, or or Hawthorne either, the the whole point of those two novels is to make a comment about the author's own day and age using right. a using the peculiarities of a specific historical period as the stuff of his argument, right? Hawthorne is saying sure. Massachusetts Puritanism of the 17th century gave us these particular attitudes. And since they're still relevant in 1850, when I'm writing the story, I'm going to use that setting to make a point about mid 19th century America. Is that, isn't, isn't that a essentially the, the, the goal of a writer of historical fiction? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's fair, and I think maybe we have to have a, a narrower definition in order to get at the real truth of things, but then we can go around applying that lens to a lot of different works, and maybe what we have to evaluate is, um, is it pretty clear and obvious, you know, when you scratch the, the work of literature a little bit, that the author was commenting on something really specific about that time period, or is it just a fun, exciting adventure story, you know? Yeah, or is it just an example of the art imitates life um, principle that an author who sure. wants to tell a great story about a particular aspect of human nature says, what's the best example of this I can think of? And he goes to yep. the record of actual life and looks into history first. Yeah, exactly. I, I am um, a fan of using historical fiction to introduce children to literary personalities. I love that. What does that even mean? Um, Tell me. You know, you know, we just defined historical fiction as fiction that either highlights a particular event that's historical, right? Or a per- particular personality that's historical through its setting. Um, for, for example, there's a children's book called The Bell of Amherst, or The Mouse of Amherst, sorry. And it's by Elizabeth um, Spires. Okay. And it's written in order to talk about the life of Emily Dickinson, oh. the American poet. And, um, you know, there are several others like this. Uh, what is the one about Benjamin Franklin and his little mouse friend? Do you guys know that one? Oh, I wish you hadn't asked. I could have told you. Ben and me. Ben and me. <laughs> ben yes, and me. Ben and me. I mean, there are several um, like that that are written for young readers, yeah, yeah. right? In order to, to interest them in personalities from the period, whether they be historical personalities or... Um, artists. Oh, yeah. And I love the ones that are about artists, <laughs> that are about authors. Authors in particular. <laughs> yes, because the personalities, that you get a little biographical um, history of the the particular artist or writer, and then some of their work sometimes creeps into the text as well. So oh, anyway, wow. I, I'm a real fan of that with children. And then the the the, the use of it, the, the glory of it is to interest the reader in a particular historical Right, Period. through one story, interesting them in other stories, yeah. right? That's awesome. It's really fun. I wonder if um, Robert Louis Stevenson's The Black Arrow is an um, inadvertent example of that. Because in The Black Arrow, I don't know if you guys have read this one, but it's a wonderful um, it's kind of secondary Robert Louis Stevenson story, not the yeah. big budget ones like Treasure Island. But it's set in the Wars of the Roses, and the um, it's one of those historical fictions that Ian mentioned where the uh, entirely fictional character bumps around between actual historical figures mm-hmm. and uh, has his own little literary point and there's literary themes. But he runs up against Richard III 
who we've talked about already. And a completely different version of Richard III, sort of, than Shakespeare, right? Uh, well, well, I don't know. I don't well, know. I mean, he's similar. He I, has some similar vices, but... Yeah, I, and he's a little bit more human, I think, than Shakespeare's. But but I was struck, yeah. when, I'm struck when I read this story by the fact that Stevenson was using Shakespeare as his historical hmm. record. And he was maybe making wow, some. It's a very, work of literature set inside a work of literature. It's a, set yes, inside a that's what I mean. <laughs> it's a work of literature set inside "quote unquote" history, but that history is really another work of literature. Oh wow! And he does his his variations. I think Emily's right. Richard the Third is a little bit is a little bit different in Stevenson's treatment than in Shakespeare's. But I'll bet you anything he had Shakespeare's play as his source text rather than some academic history of interesting the uh, late Middle Ages. That's really interesting. Whoa. So anyway, the reason I bring it up is that a, a reader of Stevenson's The Black Arrow might be um, drawn to love Shakespeare or introduced to Shakespeare if the teacher knew what you had just said mm-hmm. about that kind of historical fiction. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. In fact, I might mention that next time I do The Black Arrow. Yeah. I don't know. Cool. Maybe. Very cool. So how do we determine good historical fiction from bad historical fiction? Oh, that's a good question. What do you guys think? Are there different parameters that we need to consider when we're talking about this particular genre um, as opposed to any other genre in fiction? I was going to suggest that we shouldn't try and construct a a, a distinct... Uh, rubric for distinguishing good historical fiction from bad because of what Ian said a minute ago, which is, first and foremost, this is a work of literature that we're looking at. But they did choose to set it in a particular historical time period. So if they do violence to the historical time period by not not um, doing the research, then it turns out to be poor historical fiction, doesn't it? Well, I don't. that's a good question. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. mean necessarily intentionally conflating characters or something like that, like Shakespeare did, but um, poorly depicting the period or getting their facts wrong about specific things, does that take away from the overall effect of the fiction, do you think? What do you guys think of that? Seems like we've been edging toward the other view so far that first and foremost, this is a story about a fictional story and authors use the, the facts of history willy-nilly in order to tell their stories, right? How far do we take yeah. that, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah. How far do we take that? That's a good question. I guess what I guess what I would say is that um, take it as far as you want. At a certain point, it's not historical fiction anymore. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because you've made up a period of history. Yeah, at some point, fine. it, it ceases to be historical totally fiction, and it's just fiction, but we've got to call it by its proper name. Which is okay, but I guess that doesn't change the attitude that I want readers to have at all. Right. I mean, what, what I'm trying to say is, here's the attitude of a good reader. And let's talk about, this is what we do on this podcast, right? We sit around and we talk about the attitude a good reader should have around any kind of book. <laughs> and we're saying the same thing over and over again on these different topics. And I think on, on historical fiction, that attitude shouldn't change at all. And when it comes to calling it what it is, I mean, I'm, I'm wide open to how we want to define the term and we want to define how, how narrowly or broadly we want to define it. But um, I, st- I still think we ought to read it exactly the same as a work of literature. Mm-hmm. I think I agree with that. I know at this point I should really be able to take the ball and run with it and say, yeah, but what if I took <laughs> such and such book and I changed this fact and this fact? And <laughs> but you can't. But I actually agree with you. So. 
No contrariness at all. Wow. I've got to stay in. I, want, I gotta leave that in. That and I want it to repeat. I want a button. <laughs> I know I should run with this, but I actually agree with you. Yeah, I uh-huh. love That's awesome. it. Well, I think that uh, that there are many more comments we could make about historical fiction, about our love for the genre. Don't let anything we've said today give you the impression that the Center for Lit Crew doesn't love historical fiction because there's nothing better. But I think we're out of time for today. So thank thank you guys for participating as usual. Thanks for the uh, the goodwill and the cheer and the energy of our discussion. And thank uh, those of you who listen for tuning in. Uh, if you want to go to iTunes and rate the podcast, we would appreciate that. And uh, check our website at centerforlit.com for future episodes. Also check out the Pelican Society where you can uh, log in and receive members-only benefits of all literary types for your reading slash teaching journey. We would be glad to welcome you. Thanks once again for tuning in, everyone. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. It's you. It is you (laughs) this time. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>